Are nanobubbles the secret to optimal health, wellness, and mental performance? Over a thousand scientific studies say yes. Molecular hydrogen, or nanobubbles, produce the number one cause of cognitive decline, premature aging, and tired-looking skin by destroying the most damaging free radicals. Vital reaction hydrogen tablets transform ordinary water, or any non-carbonated drink, into cell-optimizing hydrogen water. If you'd like to try hydrogen for the next 30 days risk-free, go to TryVitalReaction.com. Use the discount code GENIUS to save 20% on your first order. Note, all orders are protected with a one-year money-back guarantee and include free shipping. So use the code GENIUS to save 20% on your first purchase at TryVitalReaction.com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have John Wery. He's the chair, uh, part of the Department of Systems, Pharmacology, and Translational Therapeutics. Uh, he's the Richard and Barbara Schifrin President's Distinguished Professor as well. All this at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. So we're going to talk about epigenetics and what's called a T-cell exhaustion. So, John, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. This should be fun. Well, good. Tell me about your research, and then I want to ask you a little bit how you got into it. But, uh, you know, what are you working on right now, first of all? Yeah, we work on on two two major things that, that are linked, although it may not appear at the outset. We study a process of T-cell differentiation that ends up in what we call exhausted T-cells. These are T cells that are normally involved in fighting infections, especially viral infections or tumors that start off sort of going down the right path of being able to control infections or limit tumor growth. And eventually, for lack of a better way to put it, they essentially get overwhelmed and go down a path of differentiation that's called exhaustion, mainly because they seem to wear out their ability to sustain function over time. Um, and end up in a state of sort of a stalemate between a pathogen and the immune response or between a tumor and the immune response. And in the case of many tumors, that usually doesn't end well for the host because the tumor eventually completely exhausts or wins out or, or escapes the little bit of immune pressure that's there. What's the role of uh, T cells to begin with? What do they do specifically in different contexts? Yeah, so T cells are, are you know, it's interesting in, in this pandemic world, you know, everybody is at least familiar with immunology, um, and yet uh, immunologists do a tremendously good job of confusing everybody. Uh, we have kind of our own language about cell types and markers and, and ways of describing the immune system. So yeah, let me back up. Um, so T cells are uh, part of our immune response that's charged with surveying the body, identifying cells that are infected with viruses or other kinds of microbes that live with inside our cells. If the microbe gets inside our cell, uh, it then becomes almost invisible to those antibodies, those things you want your mRNA vaccines or your, your SARS-CoV-2 vaccines to make. And you need another way to detect the things hiding inside your cell. So T cells have this ability to sort of periscope into a cell, 
because cells present little bits and pieces of all the proteins inside them all the time. And if there's a virus in there, cells will present a little bit of the virus to the outside in a way that only a T cell can see. And then the job of the T cell is actually to either poke holes in that cell harboring a virus. Uh, the idea being that if you basically make a cell explode before a virus has finished its life cycle, you prevent lots of more viruses from coming out. Or, and T cells make these uh, very potent antiviral or, or pro-inflammatory cytokines. These are basically pro-inflammatory molecules that limit viral replication. Now, I talk about viruses because that's probably the evolutionary driver that gave us T cells uh, over, you know, millions and millions of years. But the same system is at work in cancer, where our tumor cells, because they're cancerous, they've mutated and actually start presenting proteins that are not normally made by the body. So these, these tumor cells, many times, can look quite foreign and look to a T cell like it might be, like the tumor cell might be infected with a virus or at least something non-natural that shouldn't be there. The, the whole sort of framework by which this works means that tumors that are highly mutated, you know, tumors that arise because of UV from the sunlight, melanoma, or because of smoking and lung cancer that are, that are highly mutated, paradoxically seem to be better recognized by the immune system because they look more different from ourselves. And so T cells run around the body and, and try to eliminate these infected cells or tumor cells by, uh, by basically causing them to explode and making these cytokines or these inflammatory molecules that that basically shut down the viral replication or pathogens and, uh, and help kill tumor cells. Do the T cells engulf cells or bacteria or what do they do? You mean they're poking holes in a cell membrane and eventually it loses integrity and explodes or what happens? Yeah. So, so T cells literally make proteins uh, that form a little, they poke a little hole in the cell membrane. And so when they do that, it's, it's, you know, not, terribly different than poking a hole in a balloon. And so the contents inside the cell start leaking out, then cells lose the ability to maintain basically um, sort of fluid balance. All the fluid leaks out, salts and ions leak out, and the cells, cells can either burst, releasing their contents just to the extracellular environment, and that can be very pro-inflammatory. But often what happens is these holes that get poked, T cells then inject other molecules that go in and initiate a programmed form of cell death called apoptosis. And that's, a, that's an active structured process causing cells to die in a less inflammatory way. And then the, the cells that die either because they burst, because they leak out all their contents, or because they're programmed to die, they get engulfed by other cells. They get engulfed by things called macrophages or phagocytes that, that gobble up some of the garbage around. And that garbage can either then just be degraded and recycled, or some of those cells can actually go and take those bits of junk and present it to more T cells or more cells of the immune system to try to sustain the response. So what do you think is happening? Do you think the T cells are monitoring like extracellular vesicle emanations from cells and then judging whether they're, you know, quote unquote, good or bad or healthy or not cells? And then are their proteins naked or are they encapsulated like extracellular vesicles to go into these cells? Yeah, so the way the T cells work, so all cells of the body have something something called major histocompatibility antigen. This is where immunologists lose everybody else. Um, these proteins are designed so that every cell in your body presents a little snippet of any protein inside the cell all the time. And that complex is what T cells recognize. It's typically something on the cell membrane of all of our cells. So T cells recognize that. And if it 
if the little piece of protein in the pocket of that major histocompatibility protein is foreign, uh, T cells will get activated. Now, there's a problem with the system because, of course, if you have a bunch of T cells running around your body and they've been taught somewhere, they've actually been taught in the thymus, uh, not to recognize your own proteins. All right, so that's great. So they don't get activated. Uh, your T cells can stick around for many years. So what happens then when you go through puberty and all of a sudden your, your body is expressing things that were never there before? That could cause the T cells to get activated. So your immune system has a very, very orchestrated way to ensure that T cells only get activated when there's something dangerous and foreign around. And so that's because things like germs stimulate what we call the innate immune system. They stimulate, you know, bacteria make parts of their membrane that mammals don't make. That is hardwired into the immune system to be recognized as something foreign. You then get the license to activate T cells, that there is some dangerous bug around and the T cells now are in a state where they can get activated properly. Quick question. How does the cell to cell signaling occur though? I mean, you know, if I'm a T cell, there's only so many of them. I don't think they're sitting adjacent to every cell in the body. So again, how do they get the initial signal to migrate to an area and how do they interact with the MHC? Do they have to temporarily bind and unbind? It just seems like a very inefficient. Great question. So what happens? No, T cells can't survey every cell in your body. There are way more nucleated, what we call somatic cells than there are T cells. And it gets even more complicated because T cells have these receptors on them, the T cell receptor that are all variable. They're all different from each other. So how do you find just the right T cell with just the right receptor to recognize, you know, that bug or that virus? So the immune system has a very, very clever trick. It organizes all of these activities to flow through lymph nodes. So when you get infected, let's use SARS-CoV-2 as an example. When you get infected with SARS-CoV-2 and the virus starts replicating in your, let's say, nasal passages, parts of the virus are not natural. They're not things that your, your normal human body makes. Um, in this case, there's a viral RNA, a double-stranded RNA, that shouldn't be there because your cells don't typically make RNA that looks like that. That stimulates local immune cells to get activated. That happens because your, your epithelial cells lining your nose can recognize that that viral RNA shouldn't be there. You make some inflammation you call in a very specialized cell type called a dendritic cell. These cells respond to inflammatory cues, come to the environment, pick up any bits of the virus they can find. And when they do, when they reach that inflammatory environment, there's basically a switch and they home to the closest lymph node. And in the lymph node, the lymph nodes are like the highways of the immune system. All your T cells flow through your lymph nodes, some very, very high rate. Uh, and in the lymph nodes, there are actually these quite literal uh, roads that the dendritic cells travel on and the T cells travel on that creates a much, much higher probability that they're going to meet each other. When they do, the dendritic cell is a very specialized cell that carries with it not only bits of that protein or, or antigen from the virus, but it also now has the cues that this is something dangerous because there is inflammation in the site I came from. So it does two things. One, it activates the T cell because it's carrying with it a little bit of the virus that, rec- that the T cell recognizes. And two, when the T cell now gets activated, goes from a resting state to being activated, the T cell now gains the ability 
to home back to sites of inflammation. So it could go anywhere in the body, but it's going to follow a gradient of inflammation. And in this case, the inflammation is coming from the same place that dendritic cell just came from. So you basically have now... So it's this- like a, it's chemotaxis, essentially. It's following gradients of, um, of substances back to the, the origin. Exactly, exactly. So you go back to the place where the problem is, and now the T cells have a much higher probability of, of encountering the infected cells. And when they do then yeah, there's cell-to-cell contact. The T-cell receptor on the T-cell recognizes that MHC, that, that major histocompatibility complex molecule that's showing a little bit of the virus to the outside world. And the T-cell sees that. That's the signal for the T-cell to turn on, poke holes in the target cell, kill the target cell, make more inflammatory molecules to call in more friends, more T-cells, more other inflammatory cells. And the, and the response sort of cascades in that way. I would guess a cell presents most strongly when, uh, you know, a virus is finished replicating and it bursts open and release, you know, tons and tons of viruses. But at earlier stages, when virus is replicating inside a cell, how would that message come about? I would think that, uh, again, signals from already or recently exploded cells would overwhelm the ones that haven't gotten to that point. So it seems like it, it, this, the T cells are putting out fires instead of um, going for the origin. Are nanobubbles the secret to optimal health, wellness, and mental performance? Over a thousand scientific studies say yes. Molecular hydrogen, or nanobubbles, produce the number one cause of cognitive decline, premature aging, and tired-looking skin by destroying the most damaging free radicals. Vital reaction hydrogen tablets transform ordinary water, or any non-carbonated drink, into cell-optimizing hydrogen water. If you'd like to try hydrogen for the next 30 days risk-free, Go to TryVitalReaction.com. Use the discount code GENIUS to save 20% on your first order. Note all orders are protected with a one-year money-back guarantee and include free shipping. So use the code GENIUS to save 20% on your first purchase at TryVitalReaction.com. Yeah, well, so, so this is the key. It's all a race. It's always a race between microbes and the immune system. So problem you're describing is really the difference between the first time your immune system sees a virus and the second time or the third time. And so the first time, those events we just described with orchestrating things through the lymph node, getting back to the site, they all take time. It can take several days for there to be enough T cells. They have to expand in number as well. And to get them back to the site they need, by the time they get back there, the virus, yeah, it's already replicated in the first round of spread to the second round of cells. And if you're unlucky, that has progressed a couple more times and the virus starts spreading outside of the initial site. Now, the difference is the next time, what you're left with after the first encounter is way more of these T cells, the right kinds of T cells. So you increase the number of those T cells, sometimes by a factor of 100 or 1,000. And you actually leave some of the soldiers on the front line. So now actually there are some T cells that stick around at the site of infection, any sites of infection. It could be that they stick around in the nasal passages, but they also sort of seed the lungs and other sites. So now when the virus comes back a second time, you don't have to wait four, five, six days for there to be enough T cells. There are enough T cells probably within the first one to two days. So you limit the spread of that virus much more quickly the second time. And that's really the whole basis of vaccination. It sounds like there's two different types of signals that T cells could get. I guess one age, one is the uh, 
the altered MHC presentation when a, a cell is infected by a virus. And the other one may be when the cell apoptosis and actual virions are spit out, the progeny, that uh, perhaps it's recognizing those as well. So are those two dis- uh, signals? No, no, no. The, the T cells will not recognize the free viruses. So T cells can only recognize the bits of virus in complex with that MHC molecule. By the time the virus gets spit out as a whole virus, T cells can't recognize that anymore. Um, that's, that's a job for antibodies that recognize sort of three-dimensional structures and, and whole virions. What the T cells are really getting, they're getting signals uh, through the T cell receptor, first in the lymph node to first educate them, and then at the site of the infection to really enact their effector program. They're also getting educated uh, by the inflammation that comes from activation of the innate immune system. And some of that information is carried with that dendritic cell that comes in the lymph node to sort of alert the the resting T cells. And then also at the site of the infection, the amount of inflammations there also acts as sort of a secondary signal to keep T cell activity, you know, keep T cell activity going sometimes. Uh, What literally are the T cells recognizing? You say inflammation. So literally, what is that? Like, has it been identified specifically what kinds of compounds they're recognizing, let's say, you know, in a viral infection event in the lymph nodes. Yeah. So, so in the lymph nodes, what happens? So the dendritic cells that come in from the tissues, they get activated by uh, usually something called interferons. So when a cell gets infected with a virus, any cell of the body will start making something called type one interferon. Type one interferon is a very potent activator of the innate immune system. Those dendritic cells then change, they literally do sort of a shape-shifting and change from being sort of a, a resting, like non-activative, not activating dendritic cell to one that's highly activated. And when that dendritic cell then gets activated and goes to the lymph node, it's now expressing uh, a bunch of what we call co-stimulatory molecules that help the T cells get educated properly. That's one part of how T cells are sensing that there's a a dangerous infection. So the T cells literally need three signals. They need recognition by the T cell receptor. That's the the little peptide we call it being presented by MHC. That's carried by the dendritic cell. And that's also seen on the infected cells in the tissues. T cells need signal two, which is a co-stimulatory signal that they can get mainly from activated dendritic cells. Dendritic cells that have been activated by type 1 interferon or other other ways of recognizing a virus or bacteria. And then T cells need a signal 3, and that comes from inflammation. That can be type 1 interferon, so interferon alpha beta. It can be another cytokine called IL-12, which is something that activated dendritic cells make, um, or other types of cytokines, things like IL-1, IL-6, perhaps IL-27. So T cells really need those three signals. Then when they get to the site of infection, um, and they've been fully educated and activated. They really mainly just need that signal one through the T cell receptor to be able to turn on those effector functions and kill the infected cells and eliminate them. Well, when T cells arrive locally at a site of infection, like literally how are they, you know, now that they've been prepped and educated, literally how are they now picking up on signals? What does that look like when they're local? Yeah, when they're local, they sort of migrate through the tissue. Um, they will be following, you know, those that, that gradient of, call them chemokines, there'll be inflammatory molecules that are induced by type 1 interferon or recognition of infection. So there's a chemokine gradient, T-cells will crawl through the tissues following that gradient to the site of the most inflammation. And then they sort of do what we call random walk through the tissue, binding cells and, and basically scanning the surface of cells 
until they uh, encounter an MHC molecule with a peptide that fits the specificity of their T cell receptor. When that happens, they stop, they lock down and engage with that cell. And um, the T cell receptor transduces a signal to the T cell to engage effector activity. And the T cell starts poking holes in the membrane of the target cell and making more um, inflammatory cytokines. Okay. And then sorry to exhaust you, but now, now on to T cell exhaustion, what's that process look like? Yeah. So on, on that background of thinking about how things normally work in a viral infection, the challenge is what happens if the T cells are not successful in their job? What happens if, despite their best efforts, the T cells cannot eliminate that viral infection, or to think even just more simply about it, they can't eliminate that signal through their T cell receptor that's causing them to be activated. And this can happen in, you know, very, you know, robust infections, not uh, always things we think about in everyday life, but HIV is a good example, hepatitis, maybe malaria. And in some kinds of cancer, we see this, that the T cells, you know, they're basically needing an immovable object, but yet they're still getting a signal through their T cell receptor that they should be activated. What happens is eventually that signal through the T cell receptor starts not having the same effect and it becomes impossible for the T cell to sustain the ability to keep trying to kill more cells. And instead, T cells undergo basically a programmed change to sort of stand down, stop trying to kill all these cells, stop trying to make so many pro-inflammatory cytokines and switch to something that may be more of, let's just try to contain the problem. Now, and I can explain more details mechanistically of how that works, but one of the first questions that should come to mind is why would they do this? Probably this is out of self-preservation evolutionarily if you had a viral infection that can that just kept spreading, let's say kept spreading through your liver, and you had T cells that didn't stop trying to kill your liver, this would end very badly. You would end up without a liver. And in fact, in some settings of acute hepatitis B infection, you can get such severe liver damage uh, that patients die. It's quite rare, but it happens almost certainly because of what we call immune-mediated pathology. While there was there was a virus there, it's actually the T cells that are killing so many of your hepatocytes, you now have end-stage liver uh, dysfunction and, and end up succumbing to disease. So the switch to shutting off this robust T cell activity in some settings may occur out of self-preservation. And the program that allows that to happen is often this, this program of exhaustion that we've defined over the years. So, okay, uh, robust infection, I guess, means that, yeah, the T cells, the number of them there is overwhelmed. Uh, they can't keep up with the, the spread of virus, let's say. So what they what happens to them? They give up and they, they alter their function or like what happens to the T cells? Yeah, so the T cells undergo sort of a different path of, of differentiation and, and different path of um, just developmental biology. They actually take the cues of constant TCR signaling and rewire the program of genes that can be expressed. And so now they switch to, instead of trying to completely eliminate the infection, they act more like in a contain mode. You know, you can think about this as like, there's a lot of battlefield analogies for, uh, for the immune system, which, you know, these days maybe hit a little too close to home. Um, but you can think about this from, instead of trying to totally conquer the enemy and eliminate the enemy, now maybe it's better for the host to just see if we can kind of wall it off and prevent it from spreading too much or doing too much damage. 
And there are a couple of places you could think about this in the sort of host pathogen development on evolutionary scale. Um, the, the place where it may be most relevant for exhausted T cells would be something like a herpes infection, where you get herpes virus, and herpes viruses are very clever because they can sort of cloak themselves in what we call latency, but they infect nerves and they can hide there so the immune system can't really see them, um, but then they can sort of jump back out of latency. This is when you would get a cold sore. And in this setting, what we really want is you want a little bit of local containment. We want a few cells around that can perform sort of limited pro-inflammatory function to try to push the virus back into latency. If we had, you know, that really robust, hyper-inflammatory, really abundant T-cell response in our brains, basically, every time herpes simplex reactivated from latency, we'd have a big problem. We'd have, you know, encephalitis, brain inflammation, and really cause a lot of damage. So the decision to anthropomorphize a little bit of the immune system to figure out a, a path to allow cells, to allow T cells to stick around, to really dramatically limit their ability to cause inflammation, but yet have some capacity to prevent viruses from reactivating from latency or prevent viruses from spreading too much, or just sort of try to contain things partially, you might actually allow the organism to get through reproductive years and the species to then propagate. So we sort of think about that as, as a reason why you would take T cells as they're fighting a virus and prevent extensive tissue damage and have them go into this state of exhaustion, which is probably more like a state of kind of limited activity rather than no activity. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I understand. So what, what would be the protocols? You, you'd want to stop the T cells from becoming exhausted or you'd have some other adjuvant that kind of takes the burden off or what, what would be your recommendation? Yeah, that's exactly right. So what we've learned over the years is that this process of exhaustion is one that's, that's really actively managed. So the immune system, these exhausted T cells, they don't just sit there sort of passively not engaged. They're actually being actively restrained. They upregulate a bunch of pathways that basically amount to having one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brakes. So we know where they have one foot on the accelerator because the T cell receptor that's sort of seeing the virus or seeing the antigen is still fully engaged. But then they've got a big foot on the brakes that's telling those T cells not to go. So they're sort of held in check all the time. And so what we've learned over the years is the identity of many of those checks or those brake pedals. And one of the biggest advances in, in cancer, I mean, the cancer therapy has been the recognition that we can disrupt one of those brake pedals, actually a really potent one, and allow the cells to get reactivated, at least temporarily. And that reactivation now gives us very potent anti-tumor activity. And this is the so-called checkpoint molecules that we target with drugs like Keytruda, Optivo, um, and, and many others. Won a Nobel Prize uh, several years ago for recognizing the importance of these checkpoints in the immune system. Okay, is this just for viral infections or is this for cancer or both? Like, is the T cell exhaustion the same for both viral and or cancer infections? Yeah, there, at the very least, there are a tremendous number of similarities. It may be actually uh, the same process that occurs, at least for many tumors. You know, the T cell doesn't know the difference between a virus and a tumor. If there's inflammation and there's some 
mutated part of the tumor that shouldn't be there, that's, that looks foreign to the T cell, that's not a whole lot different than a virus in many ways. So we do see you know, very clear T cell exhaustion in many human cancers, including melanoma and lung cancer, renal cell carcinoma. Um, there are, of course, many viral-driven cancers like squamous cell carcinoma driven by uh, human papillomavirus, uh, Merkel cell carcinoma, and others. So we see very similar aspects of T-cell exhaustion in chronic viral infections and in cancer. And so the pathways that one can target to reverse T-cell exhaustion are actually uh, preserved between viral infections and cancer. Okay, so they do appear to be the same and T-cell exhaustion happens in both. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why cancer immunotherapy has has really had such success because we've been able to uh, reverse, at least partially, T-cell exhaustion. Well, if it's similar in cancer and in viruses, uh, why aren't anyone, I mean, is anyone looking at checkpoint inhibitor mechanisms for viral infections when they get dead? Would that work? Yeah, great question. So for, for some of us, uh, like, like my own work, that's where we started. And one of the first ideas we had when we recognized that we could reverse exhaustion in mice, um, in animal models, was to think about chronic viral infections in humans and the opportunity to actually see if we could reverse exhaustion there. And it turns out that actually um, the, uh, so, so one of the main targets of immunotherapy is a molecule called PD-1, uh, acts as one of the major breaks on these exhausted T cells. And when drugs targeting PD-1 were first being developed, first clinical trials were done in cancer. The second clinical trial that was ever done for targeting this checkpoint molecule was actually in chronic hepatitis C. And out of 20 patients, there was one complete response. I think there were two or three partial responses. So there was at least a, a, a good hint of clinical, uh, clinical evidence that this pathway could be targeted in chronic infections. Many people probably know we now have amazing antiviral drugs for hepatitis C. There's no longer a need for immunotherapy for hepatitis C, at least in the United States. Um, but there are also clinical trials and, and um, interventions in HIV targeting these checkpoints to prevent exhaustion. Uh, there's been discussion about uh, the same kinds of opportunities um, or, or same kinds of approaches uh, in other chronic infections, including malaria um, and, and many others. So yes, people are thinking about it. The, the need is probably greater in cancer than it is in chronic viral infections. At least in the United States, we have we have antiviral drugs for many of the chronic infections that induce T cell exhaustion. What are you working on right now? What's what's your research about? Well, we're still very very interested in understanding the wiring diagram of these exhausted T cells. Blocking the PD one pathway is pretty good. Um, works really well for some patients, but we're not curing 100% of our cancer patients. We have very interesting ways now to engineer the immune system using things like CAR T cells, where we can actually, you know, genetically engineer immune cells to recognize tumors. But many of these therapies still fail because the cells end up exhausted or we can't fully reverse exhaustion the way we'd like to. So our main goal in studying exhaustion is really to understand the wiring diagram that makes these cells tick. And we've been using a lot of sort of sophisticated approaches to screen for genes that control exhaustion, to understand the different mechanisms that lay down the wiring diagram, figure out which ends of the wires are connected to which parts of the cells, so that when we want to, now that we have the capacity to do some genetic engineering of these cells, we can actually rewire and, you know, 
encode in those rewired cells activities that are more potent anti-tumor, antiviral activities, and possibly even encode activities and functions that don't normally exist in nature to try to make the cells uh, achieve a better therapeutic effect on cancer. So we're looking at everything from the way the, the DNA is controlled by epigenetic changes, so what controls the conformation of DNA, all the way through to uh, how do the cells get from point A to point B when we need to put them in the right location to fight a tumor. Well, once a T cell is exhausted, and you may have answered this, I apologize if so, but how does it come back to its normal functioning? Is there a, a depletion of a certain you know, chemical or signal that happens and that returns the T cell back to normal? Or once they become exhausted, they're forever changed? Yeah, um, that cuts to the, to the heart of the matter. And, and the answer to your question is, we're not entirely sure. When we, let's say, block this PD-1 molecule and, you know, what we call rejuvenate these cells, um, we only get a temporary benefit. And we think that the cells sort of have one more go at it. And then they, they basically are, are down for the count. Now, we've started to understand why they may seem so inflexible and Part of that has to do with the, the way the epigenetics of exhausted T cells unfold. And so epigenetics is, is the way that uh, our DNA is organized to tell the cell which genes to turn on and off. So you can think about epigenetics as, you know, if you think about our, our DNA is basically the giant book. That's the code for everything a cell could possibly do. And the epigenetics would be the bookmarks or the highlighter uh, that tells the cell these are the parts you need these these are the parts you need to have access to. We now know that the the epigenetics of exhausted T cells is very very stable, so it's very difficult for exhausted T cells to essentially open up a new chapter or read new code uh, because uh, the the bookmarks are sort of already locked down. So what we're really trying to do is one understand the mechanisms that lay those bookmarks down. If we understand those mechanisms, we could perhaps rewrite them. And, and that's one of, the, one of the bigger goals of our work is to figure out how to rewrite that epigenetic landscape of exhausted T cells. And if we can't rewrite it, how do we actually prevent it from getting established in the first place? So if we were to genetically engineer cells, how do we actually make them exhaustion proof? Or perhaps in a slightly more nuanced way, how do we actually take advantage of some of the things that exhausted T cells do well, but allow them to be more functional or more fit or get to the right places more effectively. Okay. So what, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to keep tabs? Where can they go? Sure. Well, uh, you can go to our lab website, which you can find easily on the University of Pennsylvania website and just search for my name, uh, John Wary. You can follow me on Twitter at, at E. John Wary. And, uh, you know, you can look out for our publications and, and even some, uh, some of our work and that ends up in the lay press. Very good, John. Thank you for coming. I know it's a complicated subject. Uh, I think you did a really good job explaining, so I appreciate you being here. Well, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Are nanobubbles the secret to optimal health, wellness, and mental performance? Over a thousand scientific studies say yes. Molecular hydrogen, or nanobubbles, produce the number one cause of cognitive decline, premature aging, and tired-looking skin by destroying the most damaging free radicals. Vital Reaction Hydrogen Tablets transform ordinary water, or any non-carbonated drink, into cell-optimizing hydrogen water. 
If you'd like to try hydrogen for the next 30 days risk-free, go to tryvitalreaction.com. Use the discount code GENIUS to save 20% on your first order. Note, all orders are protected with a one-year money-back guarantee and include free shipping. So use the code GENIUS to save 20% on your first purchase at tryvitalreaction.com. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.